0: Welcome in everybody to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Danny Matrenga, and this is a platform for any first-timers where you can come and learn about the latest and greatest in health, fitness, and performance from myself and some of my friends who are professionals, educators, and PhDs in this space. So for all things health and fitness, be sure to subscribe and leave me a review if you enjoy it. And for everybody who's returning, welcome back. It's nice to have you. Today we're going through a QA. All these questions were submitted directly for the podcast at wwwcoachdanimatranga backslash podcasts-questions. If you have a question that you want featured on one of the many mailbag episodes of this podcast, be sure to visit the link I just mentioned or The link is also bookmarked at the link in my Instagram bio, which is at danny.matranga. So without further ado, let's get into the question. So question number one comes from Leah McNally. And Leah has a question about testosterone boosters and drugs. Her question is, what are your takes on testosterone boosters? Do they work? And any advice on women taking small dosages of Anivar? So first... Let's talk about testosterone boosters because this is the first part of the question. So in general, testosterone boosters refer to a subset of supplements that tout their ability to increase or enhance the body's endogenous testosterone production. Meaning, these are supplements that are sold over the counter that tout their ability to help men and women naturally produce more testosterone. Some common over-the-counter testosterone-boosting supplements or agents are Tribulus terrestris, Long Jack, or the scientific name, Uricoma Long Foley, or Tongkat Ali. Both of those you'll see... um, Quite regularly, Long Jack has become perhaps the most popular way or the most popular, I should say, um, title or designer brand version of this particular agent. D-aspartic acid is another one that you'll see very commonly added to over-the-counter testosterone boosting supplements, as are things like fenugreek, which is trigonella fornum graysum. And dendelium methane, or DIM, which is effectively an anti estrogen. So these are natural, non steroidal compounds that supposedly enhance testosterone endogenously, meaning they help you make more. My take on these things in general is that they do not work well, if at all. And I think the reason for this is twofold. First, I think people go into testosterone boosting supplementation with very unrealistic expectations. People have a very firm grasp on the impact testosterone has on muscle gain. How much of a grasp they have is kind of all over the place. To put it simply, they have actually studied the impact, exogenous testosterone, in the form of anabolic steroids. Note the term exogenous, exogenous versus enogenous. Endogenous means made from within exogenous means added from external sources. So they have taken groups, had one group do resistance training, follow a proper nutritional protocol, and checked on their gains. And they had another group simply take exogenous testosterone and they checked on their gains. Believe it or not, the group that only took testosterone had exponentially more hypertrophy, or I should say statistically significantly more hypertrophy than the group that was dieting and exercising properly. So, Case in point, testosterone is incredibly impactful at boosting gains. And when people take these over-the-counter testosterone-boosting supplements, I believe they go in expecting steroid-like results. And that is a recipe for disappointment. Many of these compounds can elevate things like luteinizing hormone. They might elevate things like serum testosterone. But they don't elevate the oh-so-important free testosterone that is critical for muscle growth and that is really the biggest thing when people take anabolic steroids that they are getting. They're getting an elevation in free testosterone. Many of these over-the-counter testosterone-boosting supplements uh, have com- have compounds that reportedly block something called sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG. And SHBG binds to testosterone. And quite honestly, most of the testosterone in your body is actually bound to SHBG. And so they can help elevate free testosterone by inhibiting in some capacity SHBG. But again, if you look at the literature, if you look at the effectiveness of these supplements, and you just kind of generally look at both the body of scientific and anecdotal evidence, they don't work that well. There are certain components that you'll find quite commonly, like horny goat weed and tribulus terrestris, or terrestris, it's quite hard to say, um, that have been shown to increase libido. And so, libido is kind of a proxy, especially for men, for testosterone production. And so, if you give a guy something like this, and he has a hormonal response uh, of any degree, and say that impacts libido... There might be some placebo from that that goes over into how hard they train, the type of gains they notice or do not notice. So there might be something going on there. But these supplements have very little ability to actually boost free testosterone when compared to something like steroids. So for both men and women, I think that you're much better off focusing on lifestyle factors. And if you do have the disposable income to purchase supplements that are going to enhance your ability to secrete testosterone, I wouldn't spend them on these over-the-counter testosterone boosters. Instead, I would spend them on supplements that might help improve sleep, like magnesium, glycine, and melatonin, because getting an adequate amount of sleep is massive for helping you produce the right amount of testosterone. Something else that's worthy of noting is that testosterone production is generally better in leaner individuals because as we produce more testosterone, there is something in the body called aromatization, which is the a rare, but it does happen... At, A conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And I shouldn't say rare, it's going to happen, but the rate at which it happens is contingent on how much body fat a person has because this aromatization actually occurs in adipose tissue. So leaner individuals of the testosterone they make, more will stay as test, less will be aromatized over into estrogen. For individuals who are heavier, there's a greater likelihood of aromatization occurring. So instead, if you are somebody who has body fat to lose or isn't optimizing sleep, get supplements that will help you improve performance and recovery. That way you can get better gains and get leaner more quickly or buy supplements that help you with sleep. If you're looking to purchase something to help you improve your testosterone, save your money on stuff like this. As for the back half of Leah's question about advice on women taking a small dosage of Anivar. First, let's cover what exactly Anivar is. Anivore is a steroid, and its trade name is Oxandrolone. Now, it's really important here that we de- define what type of steroid Oxandrolone exactly is. There are two main types of steroids people will take. Anabolic steroids, which help with muscle tissue growth, and androgenic steroids, which help with the supplementation of testosterone into the body. Androgens are male sex hormones, so androgenic steroids... Generally, oh, I shouldn't say generally, always impart male sexual characteristics. Anabolics often are enhanced by the presence of androgenics, but don't always impart the same noticeable male sexual characteristics. So, a woman taking testosterone anenthate or testosterone uh, sipionate, which are two common forms of just steroidal testosterone, would notice absolutely male side effects. She would probably see a deepening of the voice. She might see acne, skin issues. Certainly, there would be gains in strength. The androgenic steroids are very, very popular for how much they can increase gains in strength. But anabolic steroids, which for men are almost always included with androgenic steroids because Many of the anabolics have the ability to suppress natural testosterone production, so you pair them with supplemental testosterone in the form of an androgenic steroid to still get that testosterone base level, usually it's way above base level, and the anabolic benefits. But the anabolics don't contribute the androgenic effects, so they tend to be a little bit more popular with women. Now, I'm not endorsing female steroid use, and I think I should say before I talk about any of these things, I might be a little bit late, I am not a medical doctor. Do not take any of this advice seriously. But oxandrolone, or as it's commonly referred to in the physique space, uh, Anavar, is very popular with women because it is very, very light. Um, when you look at the spectrum of impact an anabolic might have, it's quite light. It doesn't tend to have many, if any, um, male sexual, uh, I should say, characteristic that seem to pop up at low doses, but that doesn't mean it's healthy, and I wouldn't recommend it for anybody, especially women. Given the fact that it's very popular, and this might come as a surprise to you, in the bikini space, a lot of your high-level bikini athletes take Anavar. It's almost a given in the figure space, along with several other drugs, but it is more popular with women than it is with men, because as far as anabolics go, it's a little bit on the weaker end, and many men will just opt for something quite a bit stronger and pair that with the testosterone. Um, But I get this question a lot from women who are working with coaches. um, And and these coaches' goals are to help them be successful in the competition space. And they recommend that these women take Anovar because they'll get much better gains and much better results with dog shit coaching because they're on steroids. And I think it's actually very irresponsible. I think if you have a coach that's telling you to take Anovar, And not communicating with you effectively about the impact that might have on your physiology or your long term physiology, it's classless. I think it's dangerous. And I think you should fire that coach immediately. So if somebody is telling you to take ANOVAR but not doing a good job of explaining how it works, what it does, its impact on the body short term, long term, fire that coach, move on. And if you wanna be successful in the highest level of bodybuilding as a male or a female, we, we have to stop skirting around the myth that steroid usage is, is optional. Um, you know, it, it, you should pursue natural bodybuilding if your goal is to compete in the in what I believe to be one of the healthier ways. But if you want to compete in the IFBB or NPC, most of your competition is going to be using drugs and at the highest level of even bikini, it's almost a given. So I, I would say stay away from those federations if your goal is to compete at a high level. And you don't want to take drugs. If you do, that's your choice, but I wouldn't recommend it. Again, I'm not a doctor, so my opinion is irrelevant. But that's really the case uh, for testosterone boosters and anivore. So second question is from Lucy Zamora. She has a question about programming. And she says, Hi, Danny, listening to all your podcasts and following you for the last year. I've learned that squats, deadlifts, lunges, and hip thrusts are all great and strength-building exercises. They also build muscle. However, I've experienced low back pain probably from the excessive use of these taxing exercises. Often I've done these exercises on the same day and three times a week. Could you guide me on how to effectively program these lifts and how to avoid probable overtraining? Thank you. So this is actually a great question. And, you know, I I think it's worth noting. That the squat, the deadlift, the hip thrust, and lunges are all excellent exercises uh, for developing hypertrophy in the lower body. And I think when performed properly, they're all very, very safe. And outside of perhaps the deadlift and the barbell squat, I think that lunges and barbell hip thrusts are almost foolproof. Uh, I mean, yes, you can do lunges quite sloppy and they can be dangerous, but you know, I think in general, they're technically a little bit easier than squats and deadlifts. And then even those two are pretty darn safe. Where you might run into problems is doing these exercises all on the same day and not having a lot of uh, attention or focus or education as to how to structure these exercises in terms of order. So let's say somebody shows up to the gym and does deadlifts, squats, hip thrusts, and lunges in that order. So here's the problem. Deadlifts, while extremely effective do have a tendency to burn the spinal erectors out a little bit, which can lead to low back pain or tenderness, which is what Lucy's asking about. Say you do three sets of 10 on deadlifts, and then you move right into three sets of 10 on squats. Well, if your lumbar extensors are already fried or they're feeling it, they're only going to get more and more agitated as you move on to squats. As you move from squats to hip thrusts, you're asking a lot of some of this tissue. It's not that your quads, calves hamstrings glutes all that stuff aren't working it's just there seems to be a limitation for people when it comes to volume where once you cross that line that low back gets a little fatigued and i don't think it's ideal to do all four of these exercises on the same day with extremely high volumes if you're going to do them all on the same day style the volume back, and select where you apply intensity. I don't know if I would do super heavy deadlifts, super heavy squats, and then just volume hip thrusts on the same day with everybody. Um, One of the things I might encourage you to do, and this is one of the things I do on my Female Physique Program, which is available on my website, is I try to stagger these exercises. So the Female Physique Program does use a a three-time-a-week frequency, but squats, deadlifts, lunges, and hip thrusts are sprinkled across that in a way that I think better allows for I don't want to say recovery, but it lowers the, it, it does allow for good recovery, but it, it lowers what I believe to be the taxation on some of those lumbar extensors with how the exercises are paired. Also, you have to ask yourself if in fact you are getting fatigue in the low back extensors, how much are you going to be gaining? from the subsequent exercises you choose to do with that stuff flared up. In all likelihood, that will, at the very least, distract you from getting the absolute best out of your exercises. So I like to pair deadlifts and hip thrusts together. I like to pair squats and lunges together. I like to pair lunges and deadlifts. I tend to avoid pairing heavy squats and heavy deadlifts with each other. Not that it can't be done, but I think it becomes exponentially more important to be selective with how you pair exercises when you're going to be doing something three times a week, right? So as Lucy said, she's experienced lower back pain from excessive use of these exercises. I've often done these exercises on the same day, three times a week. Let's say she does three sets of squat, deadlift, hip thrust, and lunges three times a week. That ends up being nine sets of squats, nine sets of deadlifts, nine sets of hip thrusts, and nine sets of lunges paired with all the other exercises she's likely doing for upper body and probably more that she's doing for lower body. That's 36 total sets 10 to 20 sets a week is probably the sweet spot for most people when they're training hard. So if we look at those volume landmarks, which do vary from person to person, you're almost doubling what I believe to be that normal high range for uh, moderate trainees. You can absolutely go above 20, but do you wanna go above 20 with the deadlift, the bench, I'm sorry, the deadlift, the squat, the hip thrust, and the lunge? That would be my argument. If we look at those volume landmarks and we say, hey, 10 to 20 tends to be the best place for people to recover, shit, load it up. Go 10 to 20 on those big ones. But if you wanna sneak in more volume, I might shy away from exercises that have a tendency to fatigue the body the way these exercises do. Because they load the spine and they can load the spine pretty intensely, they tend to fatigue the central nervous system and they can definitely fatigue the spinal erectors, which might lead to lower training outputs across the week. So I would split those up a little bit more intelligently. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me If you would share it on your social media, simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode maybe you do squats and hip thrusts on the same day, deadlifts on one day and lunge and hip thrusts on another day. And then you borrow extra volume from more stable exercises, like perhaps lying hamstring curls, um, leg press. There's so many things you can do if hypertrophy is the main goal, but maybe we don't just go massive amounts of volume with barbell work. Um, that would be, in my opinion, the most, uh, feasible and easy to implement strategy for managing the back pain, especially if you're pretty darn sure this is where it's coming from. So my next question is from Deanna McCallum. And she wants to know about isolated lifts versus upper lower body lifts. And she asks, which is better for your body when trying to build muscle, isolated lifting days or upper lower lifting days? What about push pull days? Does it matter? So Deanna's question, or I'm sorry, Deanna's question is, Are we talking about single muscle group days, like the traditional bro split of chest, back, arms, shoulders, legs, or upper-lower days, where you do upper body, lower body, upper body, lower days, or push-pull-leg, where you do a push day that's chest, shoulders, and triceps, a pull day that tends to be lats, upper back, and biceps, and a leg day, which is, of course, legs. Um, If we're talking about building muscle, I think that it's important that we look at the data, and the data does seem to smile upon a frequency of about two times per week training per muscle group. I believe that upper-lower splits, which is what my foundations program on my website is all about, and push-pull legs, which I run a push-pull leg upper-lower hybrid in the female physique program, uh, are great programs for spacing out uh, work across a training week to hit that two time a week frequency, but not smash anything too much. Um, there are some people who respond better to one time a week frequencies. And there are some people who respond better to three time a week frequencies. If you really want to dive into the nuance, you can even look at it at the level of the actual tissue. For me, my arms and shoulders have grown much more in recent months, increasing my arm training frequency, to about four times a week. Um, sometimes it's less, but and, and the volume is quite low. Sometimes it's two to three sets. Um, but you know, I will work it in there more regularly, and my arms have responded super well to that. I've also had muscle groups in the past that respond beautifully to one time per week. So I think the safe thing to do is to understand that the data... And the body of anecdotal evidence generally says that two times a week per muscle group is fine. I think that upper lower training and push-pull leg training allow for a better opportunity to nail that frequency. You can do four times a week upper lower and hit everything twice, or you could do five to six days a week push-pull leg and hit everything uh, twice. If you did push-pull leg upper lower, that would be five days a week and you'd hit everything twice. If that's too much... And you're not getting the gains you want. Maybe you go to a -a one-time-a-week split or a front-to-back split where you do like an anterior chain day and a posterior chain day. There's so many ways to play with it. But I think what really becomes important is that we just understand that generally two times a week is going to be better than one and that three times a week isn't always going to be better than two. And if you can find a way to constructively space your workouts out, and, op- and you remain open to the idea that at the level of the actual muscle, there might be times where you do three or four. There might be times where you do two. There might be times that you do one. You could try hitting a muscle group like I know a lot of people do abs or calves after every workout. And these muscles have different abilities to recover based on the amount of blood supply they get, all, all a myriad of factors. There's many, many things that can influence recovery at the tissue level. There's also no doubt that we all have certain muscle groups that tend to grow with relative ease and certain muscle groups that might be a little bit more stubborn. And training those stubborn muscle groups more frequently might help you better select exercises across your training career that um, help you load them more effectively or efficiently. And muscle groups that tend to grow with relative ease, you might want to back off on your volume and intensity to keep your physique in balance if that is in fact one of your goals. So, Those are things to consider when, as you asked, you're kind of looking at how exactly one can fit uh, all the training volume you would like to fit in across a week. And I think for most people, upper, lower, or push-pull legs will be a little bit better than your traditional isolated day bro splits. All right, and the last question comes from Raman Muragados, and The question is macronutrient split for an athlete playing a high demanding sport, basketball and football. What should be a fitting macro split? Would 50% carbs, 25% protein and 25% fat work? Actually, I think in terms of ratios that would probably work pretty well. When we consider the demands of most sports, particularly the big three in America, right, being baseball, basketball, and football, but then we have other sports that are quite similar, like lacrosse and soccer, many of these sports are what we would call glycolytic. They need some power. And they require quite a bit of fuel, especially if you're playing a full-blown game. And we can easy, most easily get that fuel from carbs. There isn't a single athlete in baseball, basketball, football, lacrosse, soccer, mixed martial arts that I think would be better off on a keto diet than a traditional higher carbohydrate diet, unless there were some specific intolerances or things like that. There's always an outlier. There is always an outlier. But in most cases, I think athletes should have the greatest percentage of their total calories intake coming from carbohydrate. And that's going to include physique athletes, bodybuilders, recreational hobbyists, and enthusiasts. And carbs get a really, really shitty uh, rap. Think about things like this. Multigrains, fruits, vegetables, technically all fall into the classification of carbohydrates. Those contribute outside of like really high quality meat and organ meat, some of the most nutrient-dense foods we have available to us. And athletes need fuel, but they also need nutrition. And so a high amount of quality carbohydrates can give us both the fuel we need and the nutrition we need to optimally recover, minimize tissue damage, and maximize repair. So I like a 50% carbohydrate. Let's talk about 25% from protein. I think this could go up or down depending on the split. Um, The reason I think it could go up or down I think is dependent on the sport. I think that Sports in which acute tissue damage is quite common or there's a high amount of collisions or there's a massive requirement for high amounts of resistance training, which if you look at traditional American sport, all of these Athletes do off-season and in-season resistance training in most instances, and for your collision sports like football, rugby, and lacrosse, there's going to be potentially acute tissue damage, bruising, things like that, and more protein will help expedite the healing from match-to-match, bout-to-bout, game-to-game, practice-to-practice. That stuff becomes really, really important for those populations. For populations where contact and collision aren't as common, maybe we could bring protein down a little bit. I think we also have to look at the gender here. Men and women both have uh, some acute obvious things that happen when we bring dietary fat too low. Women, and particularly, especially at the youth level, deal with something called REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome. This was formerly known as the Female Athlete Triad, which is almost exclusively from not eating enough food, but particularly not eating enough dietary fat, and trying to maintain a figure while competing at the highest level of sport. And Those two things don't always mix. Some athletes are lean and have amazing, beautiful bodies. And a lot of young women see um, models and and magazines and and social media, and they want to have the beautiful, sexy body and be an athlete. And that's really hard to do because a body needs fuel to perform. And with women, REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome, can kick in pretty quickly. And you'll actually see things like amenorrhea, the loss of the menstrual cycle, uh, abnormal appetite, poor recovery, poor performance. So it is important to get the right amount of food and particularly the right amount of fat. And while younger women and women in particular tend to have a harder time getting protein than men, in in general, gram for gram, they need less because they are smaller. So you could go below 25%, but I wouldn't go lower than 20%. And I think for fats, uh, for most athletes, I, I don't want to say I want to have fat super high, but I want fat to at least be at an essential level, essential so that we can guard against the loss of something like a menstrual cycle, protect a young female from something like amenorrhea that can have lifetime deleterious impact if she's unable to get that back. I think for young men, because they're in the surge of their testosterone production, effectively, no matter what you do, um, reducing fats could potentially limit that, um, I don't know how much, but I don't think you should be below that essential line. I think for athletes, anywhere from 0.7 to 1 gram per pound of body weight is great. I wouldn't go above that because then you're just robbing from fats and carbohydrates that we could use for fuel, performance, and again, that increased density of micronutrition that comes from some of those carbohydrate sources like B vitamins, vitamin C, fiber. Um, polyphenols, a lot of our uh, plant compounds, our antioxidants, a lot of this stuff in our diet that helps us manage the stress of sport and the stress of, if we're talking about youth athletics, um, just life being, for example, in high school, that's not fun. That's not easy. When you've only been on the planet for 16 years and any drama feels like it's going to end your life, at the very least, we'd want you to be nourished. So, for an athlete playing high demanding sports like basketball and football, I think 50 25 25, 50% carbohydrate, 25% protein, 25% fat is a great macronutrient split. But I wouldn't say it's the only macronutrient split. I wouldn't go a whole lot lower on carbohydrates. I wouldn't go a whole lot higher on protein. And I wouldn't go a whole lot lower on fat. You could definitely play with it, but it really comes down to a few key things. We need to make sure we have adequate carbohydrate to fuel performance, supply the body with very important micronutrients and fiber, help us manage cortisol, and in general, having more carbohydrates available increases dietary adherence. With regards to protein, it's very critical that we get enough protein to facilitate muscle recovery particularly muscle repair after intense training, whether that is in sport or strength and conditioning. And then of course, dietary fat is really important for the maintenance of our cells, for the maintenance of our hormonal systems, and for the maintenance of our brain. And if you are a young developing person, those things are just as important as if you are an athlete in middle age. And a lot of a lot gets made of young people being able to eat whatever they want and still perform at a really high level. But it's also important to remember that with regards to youth athletics, it's important that we teach kids more than just how to be good at sports. We need to teach them habits that will help them in their professional world, the academic world, and I think in the health world. And if we can make sure that kids and youth athletics are eating well, that might stick with them for life in a way that I think is really important because not all kids are going to play at the highest level of sport and turn it into a profession. So guys, that is it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Danny Matranga. Every single one of you listeners matters to me. I appreciate you all tuning in so, so much. If you could, if you enjoy this episode, if you learned something, share it. You never know who might need to hear what we talked about today. And if you have the time, leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes it helps the podcast rank higher and helps more people find it and appreciate it in the same way you do if you have a question or a problem with something send me an email I'd love to talk about it that should do it guys thanks so much for tuning in I appreciate you all have a good one